0: We all fail. We all mess up. We all do stupid things we're embarrassed by. We all, you know, get carried away by things. But you're constantly like self-correcting, self-correcting, improving.
1: Okay, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Jordan Davis. Instrumental in Columbus, becoming the sole winner of the U.S. Department of Transportation's Smart Cities Challenge in 2016, Jordan Davis has played a founding role as director of Smart Columbus for the Columbus Partnership, leading strategy and partnerships for deploying emerging technologies to improve people's lives in cities. In her role, she's overseen one of the country's first self-driving vehicle deployments formed partnership with over 100 different organizations representing 720 million of aligned investment and directed Columbus's efforts to increase electric vehicle adoption by nearly 500%, breaking world records for EV education and leading the Midwest in market growth. Most recently, Jordan accepted Can't Stop Columbus, the grassroots innovation movement, responding to the unprecedented challenge Of COVID 19. The effort has attracted over 600 virtual volunteers, launched over 30 projects in 12 different issue areas of the community, and is now organizing to be a permanent organization platform for civic tech and skilled volunteering into the future. I personally was involved with this effort with Jordan. We talk about it in the podcast, and it's really, really phenomenal, unique, and really something I'm honored to be a part of as well. In the community, Jordan is co-founder and director of Central Ohio Leadership Academy, member of the board for Columbus School for Girls, and former three-term chair of the Create Columbus Commission. Jordan has been fortunate to speak to audiences around the world about her pioneering work and has been honored as one of the top 25 government doers, dreamers, and drivers by Government Magazine. She's a top 100 influential young executives, by American City Business Journals, a rising star by Automotive News, and one of 10 Mercedes-Benz Future of Mobility Fellows in the world. My good friend, I'm really happy to have you. This is fun. We've uh, never really had a chance to do something like this, but uh, I've had a lot of good conversations, so I'm excited to have you.
0: I'm really excited to have the conversation. Thanks for inviting me to be on.
1: Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's kind of follow the format that we have been here at Gravity. And I think it's kind of fun for me too, because I don't know this part of your story. Um, <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your your family, your kind of early childhood and kind of all the fun stuff that happened early on.
0: Yeah, well, I would say my story is, um, you know, unique because every Story is unique, but I think really relatable. Born and raised in Westerville, which is a suburb of Columbus, my parents are still together. They were uh, went to kindergarten together, oh. um, and uh, <laughs> they are born and raised in Westerville. We all went to the same high school, and the DNA of being a part of a community was a part of my life from as early as I can remember. My my grandfather was the mayor of Westerville, the longest serving mayor. A lawyer. Um, my mom uh, runs the Westerville Chamber. My dad, a long-time Rotarian, works in healthcare, taking care of people. Um, and it was just always what we did was community service, uh, helping out at things, volunteering for things. And so I was an involved kid my entire life. And I remember, you know, in middle school, kind of stepping out into my own space in school leadership for the first time, and very defining and I kind of always had an appreciation for how the community works. Like I think I have a unique ability to think about things at a systems level and kind of the intersection between things. And while I was coming of age, Westerville, the community I grew up in, was equally coming of age. And a really some really key, I think, economic and societal events happened that I think shaped a lot of what I was exposed to, the level of uh, diversity of thought and ideas that have made me who I am. When I was in middle school, the community was growing significantly and we had added new middle schools and we had added a third high school in our community. And as a result, it continually fractured my friend group because we were constantly redistricting districts. And so I went to a middle school that only 10 of us actually went to the same high school that I did. And then once I was done with my first year, the third high school opened. And so my freshman class be cut in half. Um and I stayed in my school. Simultaneously, the Somali refugee migration was happening. And so Westerville the second largest population of Somali residents in the United States uh, that moved while I was going to school. And so we went from one class of English second language students to eight periods of English second language students. And my school was a collision of um, different things. And I remember my freshman year um, was very difficult for me in high school. It had broken my friend groups pretty much entirely, threw me into um, high school. I'd gotten really distracted from my academics. I was Diagnosed with an attention disorder that was in the end very helpful, but at the time very clearly an issue. And as a result, I was like failing in grades and not doing great and lost a friend and um, who died from a very bizarre d- disease. So, like, my freshman year was a huge crucible moment. And I remember my sophomore year, a principal arrived to town. And also, I should share like the cultural dynamics of my high school were quite unique. We had fights like every day. We went on lockdown three times because of gang like uh, fights and guns and all types of really interesting dynamics were going on in our community at the time. And so when sophomore year and we had kind of split the schools, a new principal came in simultaneously. His name was Keith Bell. And he, I remember for some reason that first day we had like state of the wildcat my sophomore year. And he kind of comes in like, okay, here's the new orders. There's no open lunch. There's, you know, all these new rules. We're going to clean up the school. We're going to, you know, this isn't about bad behavior and all this stuff. And I remember I almost like facetiously at the end of the like talk, I went up and introduced myself. Uh, I said, Hey, I'm Jordan. Good to meet you. Glad you're here. Um, And I get called down to the principal's office, like third period. And that like changed my story forever. He, it was, he gave me responsibility to help change the culture in our school. And from there, I became kind of his trusted student partner. And I got to get a taste of being an entrepreneur in a community space. So starting different clubs and organizations and initiatives that helped turn the attention in the school away from, you know, the bad behavior and the fights and all this like, activity that was going on towards what makes our what makes going to school great, like academic performance and pride and all of these things. And
1: I Jordan, got to let build, me just hop yeah. in for a second. So cause I want to back up. You you, you know, had said a lot that really was intriguing to me. And you're starting to talk about kind of the emergence of of of, of leadership really. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I know you to be somebody that is a really strong leader. And I've seen you really at a kind of a young age uh, take on some serious responsibility in this community. And I was curious about kind of how that came to be and if you were just kind of wired that way. (laughs) And so I kind of want to go back to the early parts. It's funny because your story so far reminds me a lot of a mutual friend of ours uh, Doug Ullman. And, mm, yeah. and Doug. You know when he was on the podcast, you know he shared also that he had parents that were very loving, had been with each other a long time, still married, um, and also very community minded. And mm-hmm. so, you know, oftentimes what happens as we kind of dig back into these stories is there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of challenge. There's divorce. There's abuse. There's molestation. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that does happen to people. Um, Mm -hmm. But what also happens to people is really loving, unconditionally loving, supportive, healthy families. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I also want to, you know, highlight that when I hear it. Yeah, because it's okay. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not only okay, it's like, that's the goal, you know? So right, like, right, right. Good right, for right, your parents right, right. and like, yeah. awesome for you. Jim and
0: Janet are great. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and
1: you got this kind of role modeling um, mm-hmm. and this, this environment that, you know, really allowed for you to, I, I, I don't know. And that's what I guess I want to ask you, you know, is like, how much at an early age did you know? that you were living in an environment that you know supported you or elevated you or gave you confidence. I mean, tell mm-hmm. me a little bit more of what it was like to live in that family life.
0: I mean, a tremendously influential, right? I think the role also of my mother is um, incredibly shaping for me. So my mom was a working mom outside the home and she had a job that wasn't nine to five. She had community events at night. We were always on, you know, we only, you know, (laughs) we only went to Westerville chamber member businesses. Like every part of our life had something to do with her career and what her life mission was. And I learned that and I helped her in that. And so I, and like little things along the way, right? Like how we picked up phones at home was Professional development, how I learned how to shake a hand and introduce myself was professional development, and those are all things that my mom was very assertive of teaching me. and I think as a woman, like that she modeled the way for me. and so much of who I am is inspired by those foundational like values of professionalism, of like building reputation, relationship building, but also, more notably between both my father and my mother is this belief that we're here to serve others. We have to give our lives to to help other people. Um, and I think that commitment to service, whether it's my dad in healthcare or my mom in community work, was absolutely like a calling of a DNA for me um, as well. And I mean, what's so interesting is even with the best parents, right? You're always going to be confronted with challenge, but I think they teach you the values of how to respond in that challenge. And so for me, my challenge in coming of age was death. Like, I had a friend die every year from when I was in ninth grade until sophomore in college. I mean, a close friend, like a boyfriend, a first kiss, like close friends. And that was incredibly traumatic for me, but I figured out how to make it productive through community organizing because that's what I saw in my parents, right? I saw my parents play a role bringing community together and I thought, okay, this is a way I can respond.
1: Let me just jump in there. So so first of all, the role modeling you got from your mother, this kind of shake a hand and how you answer the phone, mm-hmm. was that at all kind of uh, feel like it was like pressure filled or like tough to kind of you know have to be a little more adult or mature you know oh, kind of yeah. you know or, or i mean i listen i think it's also really amazing for kids to learn that but i think it sometimes you know um depends on how you're learning it you know <laughs> uh, it, it could be hard for kids too yeah did you ever feel that way
0: oh i mean absolutely there's complexes for days um in the pressure right Mm -hmm. and the expectations and I know my brother feels it too but I almost think it's self-determined at this point it's internalized of a achiever and an expectation so one of the things my mom always used to tell me is, and her father told her this is is you never want to do anything that'll be on the front page of a newspaper right and I think that expectation to hold yourself to the best all the time right We all fail. We all mess up. We all do stupid things we're embarrassed by. We all, you know, get carried away by things, but you're constantly like self-correcting, self-correcting, improving, and that's definitely ingrained. And there's a lot of high expectations there I was always working for.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean I think that it can serve you really well in your case, you know, it clearly has. You've, you know, been a high achiever and is somebody that really does know how to converse with um and, and be in relationship with people of all kinds, including people that are much older and incredibly mm-hmm. successful or, you know, important politicians or whoever it may be, you know, you have a way that you've taken on that you learn of how to really just be right there with them. And mm-hmm. so it's clearly served you well. Uh, but let's go back to the statement you made, which I find to be profound that you lost, did you say from ninth grade to sophomore year in college, somebody close to you every year. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've seen people go um, young and around me, uh, in mm-hmm. my lifetime. Uh, nothing like that in a span of years during mm-hmm. really pivotal years. And I know that you said that you kind of got into action um, mm-hmm. through it. But boy, mm-hmm. that's that's really intense. I mean, that had to also be really hard over and over again at, at that time in life.
0: Yeah. And it's only recently I've been able to talk about it. To be honest, um, and like reflect on what it, how it has shaped me, because I think it hurt so deeply, and I had my own battles of depression through high school because of this. But it also shaped a motto of my life, which was to never take something for granted, because I was exposed to so many young people dying too early, mm-hmm. and you know, some of it was from suicide. Some of it was from, you know, one was from a motorcycle, ac- a tragic motorcycle accident, another from a fluke hepatitis C. He was at my house on a Friday, was, you know, passed away by the following Saturday. Like these events that y- you can't make up and it constantly, like, I remember the first two were really hard. So junior and senior year, it almost like became normalized. So, I mean, not, and like, I'm not trying to make a joke no, about it, but like I, I you create it. Yeah. like, you create these like mechanisms to accept the pain. And yeah, you get into some bad habits along the way. But I think the idea that you can't take your life for granted and you only live once. And like, I almost went to a, the extreme yes, like, yes to everything because I could die tomorrow. Like I almost went so extreme of a consumption of experiences and, you know, different set of priorities of what became important to me um, because of those things. I think I've like balanced out a little bit more. I actually, um, timing wise, just lost a friend I grew up with um, last week from a long I battle of that. cancer. And it kind of has triggered these things and reminders again in my life that had been so uh, constantly reminded in me, uh, for so many years. And I have had a stretch of, you know, 10, 15 years where that I haven't had that fortunately. Um, and my close group of friends, I haven't had a loss, but hugely, hugely impactful on my psyche, on my emotional response to loss. And I think what has become, um, a bias for action in times of crisis. Like I remember when I led um, student government at Ohio State, we had, you know, a shooting on campus. I didn't know the individuals. Um, It was a staff involved shooting, but immediately was like, we need a vigil. We need to bring community together. We need to make sure it's a safe place. And like, I knew that intrinsically, I knew that because I needed that, you know, in times before. And like during the pandemic, like I knew the community needed to come together. During the Virginia Tech shootings, when that happened, we did a huge fundraiser at Ohio State or the Haiti. Like I've always just known like when there's death and loss, like we need to be together as a community because I needed that so much. Um
1: and it's interesting. I mean this is is exactly kind of you know why we take the format that we do in the podcast is because like you know you're kind of jumping ahead a bit, but you know there is the connecting dots you know mm-hmm. there is the like the tragedy put to use you know that that is and you know depends on kind of how you know woo woo you want to get about it or what your spiritual beliefs are i have a belief that everything is happening as it's meant to be and mm-hmm. in the divine perfection and and for our benefit And so, you know, uh, um, sadly, you have to go through all these experiences, but as an adult, uh, you do know how to handle um, some pretty uh, significant levels of tragedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's kind of hard to ignore, you know, kind of how those two things have happened. Now, I've also really, and this is actually something that I've been learning a lot about during the pandemic in recent months, really learned the concept of spiritual bypass where you know you can kind of jump to the to the belief or to the skill pretty quick without actually sitting in the tragedy or the emotion yep. mm-hmm. long enough to let that really be felt and kind of moved. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering, you know, as we kind of talk again about kind of the psyche and the depression and some of that kind of emotion, you know, did you know or allow yourself to kind of have it? Um, you know, kind of tell me a little bit more about that side. Well,
0: like I think about so when Matt and Luke passed, so Luke was my first kiss, and he was he passed away on my sixteenth birthday uh, from suicide. He was my first kiss in middle school. We'd stayed in touch. He ended up you know, dating actually one of my, you know, best friends, Lindsay. And in that instance, I would, this would have been the third because Matt, Deontay, yeah. Um, That was an interesting one for me um, because I was actually out of town when it happened. um, And I wasn't going to, we got caught in a hurricane. So I wasn't able to get home um, to be with my friends and be a part of it. And I think I had to sit with myself for a week. I remember like being so displaced, not be home, not be comfortable, not get busy, right? Like I wasn't able to like help organize my friends or anything. I had to like sit in that. And I remember that one very distinctly because it was just, I think a place where I had to, and he was also the first suicide of the series of um, incidents and so that one also sat with me in terms of really like putting pressure on myself of what my role would have was right or what did I not do and I think everybody kind of goes through that when you experience suicide is like you you blame yourself because you wish you could have solved the problem um, but then you just have this like deep sense of like sorrow um, and just a deep I think almost like a distrust in the systems that in in God. And it's when I started to detract for the first time of the fundamental beliefs of what I was raised in, right? Like it just started to disrupt like the world.
1: Yeah. Tell me more about that. So, you know, this is a big thing and I've also kind of gone through it um, on the, the distrust, the disbelief in the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit, you know, how were you raised and, you know, what happens and kind of where are you today with that piece?
0: Yeah. So I was raised Catholic, um, which has a lot of connotations to it, right? A lot of guilt complexes and sweep things under the rug and, and move on and do it in secrecy. And my, my whole, my, both sides of my family um, have been Catholic for generations. And I'm am, I am no longer a practicing Catholic. I am spiritual. I would not call myself religious. I think that um, began when I was in high school. It got further it, um, independently defined in college. For me, that the decisions that I was subconsciously and consciously making about my belief system was absolutely rooted in, I think, Becoming real with this concept that we live for a short amount of time. And what's my value system about making the most of that time on earth? And, like, if I'm thinking about my presence in the world and what I'm here to do, I think I've come to believe that I'm here to make as much good and use my life to make as big of an impact as possible. That to me is not driven by a set of uh, sacraments or commandments or things it's it's just an ethical right or wrong belief in service and and of of legacy and of making my life meaningful and touch people's lives and making a change. And I think that started to like make me an active participant in my choices and not Mm. be like the system above is deciding what fate will be, right? Like I'm gonna decide what fate is going to be. But I'm spiritual in the belief that we have this like interconnectivity and like humanity exists and like there's a higher power that's creating the systems at play. But like in terms of my subordination to, you know, a, a weekly religious routine really got, I think, fractured in the in that kind of thinking, if that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. It does. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, an interesting thing, you know, because you broke out of and i don't know kind of like how hard that was but there's a family dynamic there that often you know does keep people kind of up keeping up with those those weekly practices you know you you kind of had this life experience and and i and i think that's kind of what you were saying is that the experience you were having in life kind of led you to really take on the view that you have is that right
0: Oh, yeah, because I think those life experiences make you, or mine at least, made me have to figure out what got me out of bed every day, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Like, why keep going? Like, how is this still happening? Like, right, I had to make those, I had to create those reasons for myself at a really young age, and I didn't find it in church.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I had to find it in a meaning of, today that I think is the legacy of every person that's been in my life that left too soon, Mm -hmm. what they taught me and what I hope I carry on in their honor is that I don't take every day for granted, right? Mm -hmm. And like every day I'm making some type of contribution, but I'm also like embodying their aspirations and dreams and what I can achieve. So I, I guess I, I found a purpose in something else them yeah
1: yeah and and, I, and I'm wondering kind of beyond the purpose of really living every day mm-hmm. you know because you have it and you know that you can't take it for granted there, mm-hmm. there there also seems like there's there's other purpose there there's more purpose there beyond just maxing the day out, you know as I hear you talk about, being of service and kind of what you you know learn to do in times of tragedy w- what is that tell me more about kind of like what what's the other reason for for why you do what you do
0: yeah i mean i think there is a an ingrained kind of motivation for me that i i want to be in service of others i want to help others i want to empower others or uh, which is juxtaposition between this relentless belief that like my life has to matter. Like I can't not like this life can't not matter. Like Uh I have it, like this is special. Like I need to make it matter. And shouldn't we all right? Like shouldn't we all make our lives matter to a bigger purpose, to a bigger reason of making the world a better place. And so for me, I think it's a combination of that, like, Not taking things for granted, but then also feeling like, can I help others be better? Can I help others make the most of their lives as well? So, and and there's tons of examples where my story ends up like connecting a lot of those dots for myself. And I'm not sure if that's from the models of my parents and the DNA of my parents helping me in that, or it's, you know, this feeling of, this is something that I can do is bring people together. Like I think one of my superpowers is being able to bring a lot of type A people together and like, or bring a lot of people together to mobilize collective action. And I think there's something about that that is, I think really powerful and maybe it's because I need it. Like I needed that too. Mm-hmm. Like I mm-hmm. needed people around me. I needed to feel a part of something. I needed that too. I'm not, I'm not quite sure I have, I have, put a pin on exactly why. There's probably many things.
1: Yeah. Well, it might be all of that and and more that still is emerging mm-hmm. and unfolding. Let's go back to you, know, you being in high school and this <laughs> principal tapping you and, and changing your life. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that.
0: Mr. Keith Bell. Yeah, probably one of the more most transformative figures um, that and my uh, music teacher, uh, Todd Stoll. So, I think Mr. Bell was the first one. So, the first um, death happened um, my freshman year of high school, shortly into the school year. It was uh, September 12th, I believe. Matt Whitlow passed away, and in from that point on, my stuff, my freshman year was kind of a hot mess. Right, like that was the first thing. It was just you know I in friends with different friend groups that weren't great for me and was seeking you know relief in unhealthy places and all kinds of stuff and in that moment sophomore year where he like empowered me to take responsibility I think directed my energy in a really positive place and and saved me I think from a lot of things but more importantly he he gave me space to play with my ideas and turn my ideas into action and two of my strengths when, you know, I'm a big like personality inventory person. So if you've done the Gallup strengths finder, my top two are ideation and activator, which is a devilish combination because then I have, when I get an idea, I can't not do it, which is a little bit insane. But the idea that I could start to see a vision of how to improve things, um, gave me a channel and an outlet to be creative, to make a difference. And I think to build on this entrepreneurial part of me that has literally defined everything I've done. And he also gave me space, which I think is really important to... kind. Well, and I would say Todd Stoll similarly to challenge the systems and the constructs of like why we were doing things the way we were doing. And it was my first ability to kind of change the rules and say, well, these rules were built for one outcome and that's not happening. Let's reimagine the outcome um, and reimagine the system that's inviting that outcome. And he was, he gave me space and he like coached me in a really great way. And then I think Mr. Stoll was this, Big i like idea man. I remember this one conversation with him. We were going through the the um, annexation of the schools and the separation of the schools, and so they're going to create a third high school. And I remember this to the day. And he was like, "Why doesn't it just one high school and every school specializes in a subject? And we all just go. So you go to math on Mondays in this building, and you go to you know science on Tuesdays in this building, and arts in this building, and we create best in class like. Teachers and places. And I'm like, nobody's thinking like that, right? Like, everyone's so attached to mascots. And at that time, right, those are like the most present things to you is like your school pride and like high school you go to. And it just completely disrupted that model of we all go to one high school, one building. And I always remember that. And I, you know, have tried to surround myself with thinkers that get me out of the box like that, I think throughout my entire career. And I love that thinking. Like, I love imagining how we can disrupt systems and think differently. Um, And so I think the combination of those two led me to create my own major in college, kind of choose my own path. No job I've ever had anybody's ever had before. No, you know, I created new student organizations at Ohio State that are now legacy traditions and, you know, programs and
1: very, talk to me about that, you know, because I I think that's like, pretty uh interesting you know I've never heard of anybody create their own major uh, I've never heard of anyone that created the position you know that's never been had before I mean that that's that's something pretty unique to you and and so tell me kind of like a little bit about that when you when you start to kind of like is it is something you see is it like a vision is this like an image uh is it language like how do you kind of like get this so clear in your mind that you're like this is what we're going to do this is what we need to be doing and then like not only that the activator side comes in it's like and and, and we're doing it you know like we're, it's uh, happening yeah. you know yeah. i mean i've seen you work you know we'll maybe talk a little bit about kind of what you just did with um, can't stop Bus. You know, I've seen you activate things that never existed before, and you know it, it is really powerful. You, you've got a real gift, but maybe you could kind of explain it a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, and I do think that envisioning part and then making it be is is a is an uh, sometimes a lonely place, a very frustrating place because a lot of times when i I do see what's possible, i I think, of course, like duh, like that's absolutely where we want to go, but I continuously forget that some people don't see it that way, right and so i I appreciate your framing that this is like a great you know gift, but I would say it's also you know a challenge and sometimes a barrier in um, relationships and trust too that we can unpack because. You know every strength has weaknesses, but for me, I think it absolutely began. Um, so one of the other transformational experiences was studying abroad when I was in college. I went early as a sophomore um, for half a year and interned in Parliament in England, and then I backpacked. You know, as most do when they when they get to go abroad, and that was my first and only, frankly, episode of time of a you know. Four more months outside of Columbus. Um, I've lived here my entire life, and I think that experience gave me the self determination to just you know figure it out. Um, and this like explorer mindset and this curiosity, I think, really grew. Like it was always been in me, but I don't think it matured. That matured it really fast. I didn't go with an Ohio State program. I didn't go with an existing major. I kind of landed in there on my own. Knew no one. And it like totally brought out a lot of things. And then simultaneously, the summer before that, I had interned for a company called Lead America, which facilitates leadership programs for high school students in different cities around the country and people fly in and do those. And I learned that I really had, I, I loved facilitation and this concept of leadership and this concept of thinking about how systems work together and so simultaneously I found something that I really liked to do and I knew was like a core like foundational skill set to anything that I wanted to do in the future. And then so I had like this sense of independence and self-determination and curiosity and exploration that just kind of like happened at the right time. And then I remember getting back and I was like, "Oh, and I should also say I was majoring in political science at the time." So <laughs> if you can imagine that. So I went to girls state in high school and um, was on a huge high from that and was like, I'm going to be the first female governor of Ohio. Like I'm, I want to do this. And so I was a political science major, um, worked at the state house, really thought I was going to do that. And then I went and worked in the parliament and I learned about the constituent relationship and the respect that the parliament had that Didn't even remotely come close to what we were doing in the states. The states is a joke. Like it's form letters, and I'm responding on behalf of people with no context, and it's nothing is ever getting to the you know elected desk. And here I'm working for an MP who's literally handwriting notes. Like I just had a whole total belief in a democracy, which changed. Like oh god, like I can't major in political science. Like this is not. This isn't. Like I'm not doing what I what I like. There's a better way, and so I think there Does was. Does that a mean conver- you're not
1: going to be the first female governor? <laughs>
0: Probably not. I think I've. Uh, I've. Yeah, we could we could unpack that too if you want. Because
1: um, I I wouldn't mind you know, throwing that in the ring, but we <laughs> we could come back to that.
0: <laughs> we can come back to that. So I think there was this convergence of like what I thought I wanted wasn't what I wanted anymore. What I thought the system of democracy, which I believe in strongly, I'm very, very patriotic, was fracturing for the first time that we might not be as great as we say we are. And I had a newfound passion in this leadership development. And so I came back to Ohio State. I was like, how do I do this? And there wasn't anything for it. But I think I learned you know, in high school that when there's not a system in place for the outcome that you want, create it. And so... I created it. So I had to go through a bunch of bureaucracy and red tape, but now it's actually a minor leadership studies is a minor at Ohio state. So I put a task force together, a bunch of my professors and we were able to credential it as a minor, not a major, but I got the major as an independent study. Anyways. So we were, I guess the moral of the story is I think there was like a convergence of new thought going on in my head and then like belief systems that I was kind of Exposed to and coming of age that made me say, Well, I'll just create it. I'll just figure out how to do it.
1: And, And so I'm just wondering, like, how much of that is like kind of just seems to be your path and it kind of unfolds and it's just kind of like continuing to go that way for you. And when you now see the opportunities, you're comfortable and you just keep going with it or how much of it is really kind of this activation piece where you're like no 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 i'm going to make this happen there's how a lot you... of
0: making it happen
1: yeah and and i guess you know i'm also curious about kind of this thing that i've experienced when you're making it happen and it hasn't been done before mm-hmm. it's really tough too i mean you said it can be a lonely place i've experienced that you know, people are real quick to go, wow, this is great when it's done. But, you know, when you were kind of trying to explain it to them to begin with, they didn't really listen or get behind you. You know, Mm -hmm. it can be tough to be on the front end of that over and over again, especially, you know, a young woman in a, you know, important role. How hard has that been for you?
0: Hard. I mean, I think I've... You know, gotten criticism. I break a lot of eggs along the way. And I think, you know, sometimes you just gotta believe it into being. Sometimes you just have to show people to get them to understand. Like you can only find so many words to make your vision like for people to see it, you know? And sometimes you just have to show them. Like I remember um, great example. So when I graduated college from Ohio State, I didn't have a job, whatever, got with the partnership we can talk about that too, but then flash mobs, all those things. Um, <laughs> so when I started the partnership, one of my things I took to Alex was, I don't think we graduate any ambassadors of Columbus. Like all of my friends have moved to other cities that they think are cooler, were never taught that Columbus. Like I was amazed. I've lived here all my life and I had a different experience when I moved into Grandview and downtown. I'm like, how does the city, I thought the city was small and like, you know, suburban, right? Like I didn't know there were these other experiences. And so I was able to, because of my roles in leadership at Ohio State, have dinner with Dr. He at the time and kind of say, kind of pitch him my ideas about, I think, you know, we should be producing ambassadors of Columbus as a land grant institution. Like that's economic development. Like that's the role of the land grant institutions, produce talent for the state. And we're not delivering on that. And so I had built a lot of trust with Dr. Gee over time. So we pulled together a meeting with my boss, Alex, you know, Dr. Gee, the head of student life and the head of enrollment. And it was supposed to be like 45 minutes. It ended up being 15 minutes that said, Hey, Jordan has this idea. Go make it possible, like help make, you know, students ambassadors. And so we teamed up with a team and the vision was to create this like pep rally at during welcome week like expose people to columbus on day one and simultaneously there's a woman in town who was kind of chipping at people that we need to improve the town gown experience and when alex like assigned me he's like she's gonna do this she totally dismissed it she's like no way like you're essentially dissing her by giving you this junior fresh out of college person that's gonna solve the town gown relationship in the city like what is this? And I remember I invited her the day of the event and it was the biggest compliment I'd ever gotten. So essentially what we ended up being able to pull off is we bust all 12,000 first-year students after convocation, which is the only thing at Ohio State that we all do as a student together. And so from convocation, every first-year student got on a bus, was transported down to Nationwide Arena, and they got a one-hour program about Columbus and all the things you can do in Columbus. And it was the first time in the university's history that they've ever had every single student exposed to what Columbus is, ever. And I remember afterwards, she had stepped by. She goes, I would have never expected this. And she's like, was so blown away. But it was that exact thing. Like, if I would have told her what I wanted, I still wasn't the profile that you would have believed that could have done that. Right. And I didn't do it alone. I mean, we built a team and it was like amazing leadership inside the university that kept making it happen. But I think that I have that story time and time again, sometimes like where I say, like I have a big aspiration and some people are like, yeah, okay. Like, (laughs) you know, and I, I think I'm convicted to show them because I believe it's possible and I believe it's the right thing to do. And I believe I I can do it. There's no reason why I can't do it just as much as the other guy down the street can do it. Um, But I think that that doubt definitely has existed. But I think what I've learned is sometimes you just have to show people to get them to believe you. And some people are willing to go on the unknown path and like create new precedent. And some people are just not wired that way. I just think if we can accept that of like where our comforts are, we might be able to work together better sometimes.
1: Yeah, and the people that that you know kind of get it, you you kind of gravitate to, and the ones that don't, you just know you got to show them. I think it's mm-hmm. really good advice. Um, yeah. Let, let me let let's talk a little bit about the partnership, mm-hmm. and certainly about what you're doing with Smart Columbus, and I do want to touch on Can't Stop C Bus and any, <laughs> anything else of the many things that you're involved in, but. Tell me a little bit about kind of your journey with the partnership. I got to know you in part through the partnership. I think a lot of people don't really know what the partnership is. There's a lot of kind of misconceptions about the partnership. It's changed over the years quite a bit. You know, talk to me, tell the audience a little bit about kind of your experience, your role, kind of how your uh, view of, of the partnership is.
0: Yeah. So I've been with the partnership for about nine and a half years and, you know, it started out as like a dream role. I was a senior in college and I did a flash map that went viral and I created a small choreography business from that choreographing flash mobs. It was kind of took the trend wave if you remember that. So if you've seen the Ohio Union flash map. I
1: yeah. do. And I never knew that was you. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. So I I remember choreographed- that well. Yeah, it was one of like such a fun, spontaneous thing. So I created a choreography business and was reproducing flash mobs for a bunch of like cruise ships and different like conventions and stuff. And one of them was Alex. He wanted a flash mob for the partnership holiday party. And so he hired me and my partner at the time, who was a videographer. And we produced not only like a version of the flash mob, but like a 30 minute song and dance production with our improv group in college and like a very cool thing. And we did all these impersonations of CEOs that we had no idea of the consequence of what we were doing. And um, it went off very well. And through that, Alex kind of got to know me and my work style. And I think was impressed with, again, this, like I had a vision of what I wanted to be somehow he trusted me and we, we delivered on it. And so we had kept in touch I actually graduated without a job. Um, I stayed an intern. I, I didn't. I tried to pursue the consulting route, and that just wasn't um, for me. A few other things. I was working on a um, a leadership program for high school students, which I'm still really involved in today. That we were standing up. Um, so it was keeping me busy. Anyways, I got a call from Alex in the middle of the summer, and he said, "Hey, I'm growing my team, and I want you. I want you to join." and we essentially kind of shaped a role that fit my skill sets and what I wanted to work on. And then, you know, the rest is history. And the partnership to me is an extremely interesting model that I'm very passionate about, that I think every city should have. And the reason why I think that is because. You know, I grew up in a chamber family. So my mom is a chamber executive and the chamber models exist to serve business and to advocate for the business health, right? So that economic vitality of business. And there's a very important nuance between the partnership and its role in convening the private sector and what a chamber is. The partnership's motto is to leave your selfish interests at the door and bring your community interests to the table. It's a vehicle focused on community impact and getting businesses to lean in on public-private partnerships and big opportunities for the community. And the values are very, very different in what the staff does. Both have a place. I'm not saying one model is the right model, but it is distinctly different. In that a chamber, right, the staff works as a service to business health. In the partnership model, the team works to the community's benefit. And brings the private sector strength to make that happen. And I really believe in the power of cities that, you know, if you think of a city as a big business or as a big system, like the private sector has an extremely important role in keeping that business healthy. They're funding our arts, they're funding our initiatives that, you know, help us solve um, poverty and housing and. There isn't a single social issue or community issue that the private sector doesn't have skin in the game in, whether it's through financial investment, physical place, um, policy, people, and jobs. Like, And so the alignment of the business community in trying to achieve a, a community good is, I think, the secret sauce of what uh, what communities of the future need and what mayors need and what um, not like we need as residents, we need a business community leaning in, and I think the partnership is the vehicle to get the private sector leaning in.
1: yeah for the for the audience who does not know, we're talking about the Columbus partnership, which is historically made up of fifty to maybe seventy five now CEOs, but also its community leaders from nonprofit, from the universities. it's you know made up of Leaders uh, in the community and has historically been focused on economic development. It's it's expanded to really tackle kind of a wider range of issues that are really aimed at the health of a city. And right. you know, I had a similar experience in the young adult leadership program when we went to Harvard with our group, and there were there were uh, uh, groups from cities around the country. Everybody, when they kind of heard about the Columbus Partnership, the case study, you know, kind of unanimously said, you know, when we went on break, come on, tell me the truth. You know, does that really (laughs) happen? There's no way that you're billionaires and you're CEOs. Like, they actually put the community first and come together and lock arms. Uh, cuz that just doesn't really exist and and i do think it's been the secret sauce of columbus and it has really produced a lot of good and you know it's not perfect nothing is right. but you know it's certainly um, willing to get better and you know i think alex fisher who we're talking about you know is really the kind of fearless leader of that group and you know i'm i'm i've been really energized by kind of how it's started to respond during the pandemic and you know what's happening um, as it pertains to you know the the social issues and yeah there's a lot that you've certainly been involved with but but let's kind of transition out of the partnership so mm-hmm. um, you know you you then kind of find yourself and you know, talk about smart Columbus in your next kind of big gig and you know yeah. just kind of how you want to talk about pioneering and, and something <laughs> new I mean, this is yeah. all very kind of unique, uh, you know, maybe you could speak to, you know, smart.
0: Yeah, maybe a lot of puzzle pieces will come together. So in 2016, the city applied for the U.S. Smart Cities Challenge. 78 cities, mid mid-sized cities applied with a vision for how we'd apply technology and transportation to improve people's lives. Columbus became the sole winner of that challenge and received a set of grant dollars. I was a part of the grant team, and then transitioned to help, you know, stand up the joint venture between the Columbus Partnership and the city, um, and help kind of operate this from a strategic partnerships perspective, implementing pilots and um, a, a collective action agenda, essentially between the public and private sector on adopting clean tech solutions and transportation. And I think the. Result of that first chapter was um, kind of a confidence that our community can be a national and global leader in something that we can write the playbook for things that have never been done before. We've one of the first countries or first cities in the world to deploy autonomous vehicles against the use cases of you know residents, uh, goods, and kind of tourism. We are deploying technologies that have never been proven before, and so we're building a muscle. I think in this first chapter that we can we can do things, we can try things, we get value out of this. What I'm really excited about is kind of our next chapter. So as these grants come to an end, um, and we effectively deliver on on them, which we will, I think the future of of how do we reimagine what innovation in the social and community space look like. And how do we bring about a, a smarter, more sustainable city through new and next solutions? And how do we do that to solve for equity and to achieve prosperity and truly achieve prosperity, right? Um, I think what I've learned in this process is so many communities have siloed activities in this space. And the coalescing between public, private, nonprofit, academic, and this facilitation of thinking to really solve problems doesn't really happen. Um, And if it happens, it happens in abstract ways and in reports and studies, but never in an actionable, implementable set of projects. And I think we really have an opportunity to build a model here for collective impact and for social change uh, that leverages the expertise of the private sector um, is totally aligned with the public sector goals, right? And helping make sure the market is facilitated in an equitable way helps disrupt how we think about delivering nonprofit services to appeal to like real resident experiences. And we can do it in a way that we can commercialize it. And I'm just really excited about I think the potential of making a digital first city, like how do we become a community that has digital experiences that makes things more seamless and easy to access and a better community to live, not just for those of means, but for those uh, who are the most vulnerable. How do we make life easier for them? How do we make life more convenient, um, more fair, more connected? And then I, I think this idea that we can lead on climate out of the Midwest is right for Columbus more than ever. I think we have the right leadership with, you know, utility headquarters here, like AEP. I think we have an opportunity to lean into that space in a way that, you know, no no Midwest uh, state has done. We have a good track record of it. So I'm I'm, I'm excited. All of it, is unknown. All of it has never been done before, but I think we have a framework and a strong political commitment that that it will be an exciting chapter for Columbus to watch. I'm excited to to take us there.
1: Yeah, good. And that's what I was going to ask you is kind of, you know, what what does the future look like for you? You know, and Mm -hmm. as much as you know, um, I mean, the kind of first chapter coming to an end, you laid out a vision for the next chapter. Certainly you know there's so much need um, you've kind of put your whole life experience to work and you've you know found these these roles that you can kind of create and and really be um, you know a change agent really be able to you know impact this this city and so many people's lives is that kind of where your heart is, go forward. I mean, is that kind of how you see yourself really continuing to put this life to work?
0: Absolutely. And I think if I can continue to do it in a city I love even better, you know, I think how can we bring about this vision of a better future? And I think as a future that's contemporary, that's bold, that's fair, and just sounds like abstract, but uh, I think there's very tactical things we can do. I think that's yeah. my activator in me. I'm like ready to go. So yeah. I'm I'm not intimidated by the challenge. I'm inspired by it. I think our community can become more leading, cutting edge and future forward in what we're doing. And I I think there's a lot of people like you who are already doing that in your developments, right? Like in the placemaking attributes of of Gravity and Gravity 2 and the social impact, you know, work that you're trying to do. Like, there's there's a group of this next generation of leaders, I think, in our community that are ready for this and are waiting for this. And they, they you know, already think it, right? Whether it's Matt Skitland or Doug or you. And I think the more we can create the community fabric to embrace this different thinking and this culture shift, right? That's what I want to I want to be a part of. Is this culture ship, is culture shift to this next generation, like Shannon's leadership, and you know, so many exciting big thinkers. I think this is the time for a vehicle like Smart Columbus, and hopefully for me to help. So.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think it's great, and and I, you know, really think this is where there is still kind of a a free zone frontier. You know that that there is. So much opportunity, and the to me it looks like it's it's like absolutely where we have to be going absolutely and and yet you know there's not enough people in that space, so that means it's just like a wide open space to go make change, and mm-hmm. we do need more people to come together who have that vision. you know I think one of the things that strikes me the most and hearing you kind of describe the strength finder and knowing you is it is rare for people to not only have vision but to be either courageous or confident because i don't actually really believe that it's not something people have the ability to do it's Agreed. more about you know a experience that you have to Gain and learn, and then build confidence, and and that's you know this this part where you're actually activating, and mm-hmm. so we need a lot of activation. There are a lot of people who have good ideas, right. and there are a lot of people who are able to get stuff done. Where we really need to go is is bringing those two things together. Yeah, and you know yes. that's what you've done, and and maybe you know you want to talk a little bit about can't stop C bus as we as we wrap up or anything else you want to make sure we connect on. But I mean, boy, the amount of activation that happened there in a short amount of time and by so many people.
0: So many people. That was the
1: beautiful thing. Talk a little bit about that. Explain that for people who don't know. Well, and and I think there's
0: like no better verb. It's exactly what you say, like activation, activation. like Can't Stop Columbus activation platform for the community that, happened in direct response to the governor's shutdown of local bars and restaurants um you know i i tweeted out an idea to do a hackathon which is so funny right like i was like oh we should be doing a virtual hackathon get people together to start you know working on solutions know that in times of crisis great ideas you know result and so many people like wanted to help overnight you know all of a sudden there was you know, so many people reaching out, we had an organizer group. And I, I do think in retrospect, that's a muscle we've built in the, you know, I'm going to say the typical the Columbus way, like people know how to work together here. And so the idea that somebody would call and jump in and say, we got to do this together rather than create rival things was just like the norm. That's just what we do here in Columbus. And so instantly, like we built alliances, built teams, and from there, the momentum went way beyond any expectation. No, nobody just wanted to spend a weekend. People want to spend months, you know, working on this thing and being alongside, you know, the front lines and the community through this. And our job then was to try and keep up. I mean, it went from like a hundred people on the first day to 1700 people by, you know, the second week. And our job was to create a platform that could stretch and just facilitate people organizing. So um, it was all done virtually. I think I've worked with nearly all strangers on this, you know, effort, um, and we became friends through Zoom. Uh, so when we see each other in physical form, it'll be kind of bizarre. But I think this this idea that people would brainstorm and call out a problem that they solve. And then people would raise their hand and say, I have this skill set, I can help you, let's ideate. You know, just took off. I mean, we've had uh, 50, more than 52 projects mobilized out of this group, raised over $200,000 directly for local businesses through different, you know, socially distanced programs um, and events. We have built, I mean, one of my favorites, we did a design sprint with homeless youth. Um, at Star House and Huck House, and specifically with the caseworkers, and what we realized is the thing that they miss the most, and the connection they're missing, is a hug. How many of us like miss a hug? So this team has worked for months and months and months to develop a a, a medium for virtually hugging in an app. You send a virtual hug, do it simultaneously, and it sends a vibration to that person, like when they're thinking about them. I mean, there are so many discrete and macro solutions going on. That are completely crowdsourced and they're activated with people all across the region. People who were living in New York but were from Columbus and wanted to help and couldn't find a place in that community found a place in Can't Stop Columbus to to lean in and distributed, you know, twenty two thousand meals, donated over fourteen thousand PPE items. We've performed. 700 concerts for seniors in social isolation. Now you can, you know, request them for heroes. So, I mean, it's, it's been an incredible effort and it's still going, which is amazing. I mean, six months in, in, I think we've like totally changed operations like three times already. It's really like fast changing and we're just building the plane as we go. um, Which I love. And, you know, now it's, it's a much more intentional curated set of problems. We're helping dress for success. Think about, um, how to make their suiting experience for women getting it, trying to get a new job, how to make it virtual. So how do we make it like a, you know, a a stitch fix like model where you can select the clothes and they're delivered to where you are. Um, And you know we helped Columbus City Schools map where students were that were disengaged and understand the digital divide barriers and the disengagement barriers of students. Helped them reimagine virtual graduation. Developed a whole concept that they ended up implementing with boxes that they like, kind of spirit boxes that they delivered to every senior. It's just been an incredible community-wide effort. I mean, your effort was incredible. So you guys and Gravity Uplifts. I mean. What I loved about that project was, well, one, I love the picnicking that happened. (laughs) I felt like I was in Europe and all of our public parks, right? Like people used our public spaces in such like authentic, necessary ways. Um, And you like the team captured that effort by creating like art that would live within those public spaces. And I think Columbus, a legacy of this year will be an embrace of public art. And I think it started with that Gravity Uplifts project. And it and if you look at it now, the the art in front of Huntington that has been so treasured by our community through the race riots, like they transitioned it into the medium of the gravity uplifts boxes yeah. so that the community could could keep that. And now you can go into storefronts. And then at Easton, if this, you know, this new like public art effort is all the same gravity uplifts team taking. That innovative approach and repurposing it to new means of community healing and positivity and purpose. And it's just amazing. And it's yeah. it's everybody's, which is what I love about it. It's not like one person's thing, it's not one organization's thing, it's everyone's thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really is phenomenal. I mean, if you were to just kind of have stopped after one of those initiatives, it yeah. would have been impressive, you know? If, right. if you would have said, well. You know, here, here's what we did. We did this this app, you know, virtual hugs. But but no, yeah, right. I mean it was like, <laughs> uh, I mean hundreds of things and, and thousands of people, and yeah, and it's still going. And yeah, just thank you. I think it's really phenomenal, and really just kind of a great, really um, highlight an example of of kind of how you can really take challenging times and come together. And, and help people and mm-hmm. um, you know uplift you know that's it's why we like that name. you know it's mm-hmm. you really uplift the community and doing yep. it in the, with, with, with the skills that you have and the things that you're passionate about. And that is really you know kind of how I hear your entire journey that you have a passion to help people. you've developed skills. Some of it is through tragedy and really tough learning. And some of it's been through amazing role modeling, but you've you've kind of arrived where you are and you're using your life to be of purpose and to be of service. And that is exactly the kind of journey that we want to highlight and hopefully will inspire other people to do the same thing. So thank you, Jordan, for sharing your journey and for all the amazing work you're doing. And there's so much to come and you have to do it in the city you love. You're not allowed (laughs) to leave now. So um, as long as I'm here, you need to keep working here. How about that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Brett. This was uh, just a wonderful hour spent. I don't, I feel very, very fortunate to even just have this conversation. And I don't, you don't talk about these things very often. Um, in the world today and it was really special uh, to do it with you so
1: wonderful
0: thanks for, thanks for inviting me and making this happen
1: my pleasure thanks Jordan thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to learn more about the entire Gravity Project please go to gravityproject.com please check out the podcast on Instagram at the gravity podcast music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak